You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. But we also started to recognize last week the gift that Advent is by focusing on the theme for this year, which is God's abiding with us and his desire for us to abide with him. And we laid that foundation, understanding that it began in creation and continued through Israel and continues through the church and will one day be fully realized in eternity with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And we touched on the concept of God's presence. And God's presence is essential for the topic of his abiding with us, but it's also essential for Christmas. And when I mention God's presence, many of you might have had an experience where you have sensed God's presence. Some of you tangibly so. You can remember a time in the past where maybe it was in a dream or through some interaction with another human being. You sensed God's presence in a tangible way. There's others of you that pursue Christ through your disciplines that long to have an experience of presence, long to have an experience of abiding, and you you kind of come to the reading of God's word or prayer or even this service, and you want to sense God's presence. And then there are others who realize that the concept of God's presence and the topic of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. And so how does all of that come to play when we are focusing on the birth of Christ over these Advent Sundays? And that's what I hope to be able to show to you by inviting you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and the account of Jesus' birth according to Matthew the disciple. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one in the seats in front of you. You can find Matthew on page 807. And I would ask you all to turn there because While this might be a familiar account, I hope to unpack some truths that I hope will cause this to uh, be so vivid and so memorable that it will impact your thinking, speaking, and living for months and years to come. Let me read the passage and then we will unpack it together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want us to see through our study this morning that Christmas illustrates God's abiding in a very unique way, the benefits of which, beloved, we can enjoy today. It's not the Star Wars figure that you have to wait till December 25th to be able to open and enjoy. You can enjoy these benefits today. Let's look, first of all, at God's pattern of abiding. 
God's pattern of abiding. And Matthew provides those details by this familiar passage to many of us. A familiar passage that that I hope, as I focus on the details that Matthew provides, we can see more vividly why he includes the details that he does when Luke includes other details. Which, by the way, do you know that all the gospel writers have a purpose for their writing? That's important for us because some provide certain details and others don't. Some provide different accounts or different perspectives on the same account and appear to have conflicting details. But the fact is, is that every gospel writer has a purpose and that's why the details are included. John waits till the very end. In John 20, verse 31, he says, these stories, these accounts, these tales are provided, details are provided for you so that you can believe and know that you have eternal life. Mark hits us right up at the front. Remember in the opening verses of the gospel of Mark as we've been studying it, he lays out his thesis that these are the details of the account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And remember that phrase is an important phrase for the Jews that started with Adam, moved to Israel, moved to Solomon, and would be fulfilled from a Daniel 7 perspective. And Mark says, this is him. And then there's Luke in chapter 1 and verse 4. He says to Theophilus, the man to whom he was writing, I'm writing these things so that you can accurately know who Jesus is. This Jesus who you've heard all the stories about, I want you to accurately know who he is. Matthew in verse 1 alerts the reader to his purpose. Look at verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word book is the Greek word Genesis. It means beginnings. It would have alerted those original readers to the fact that this account has its origins in the Old Testament. Matthew was wanting them to understand that the details that he provides are intended to draw them back and also to look forward. And and friends, that in itself is a great formula to understand the gospel of Matthew. Matthew will provide details. He will provide Old Testament references to cause the reader to look back and to look forward. And so that's where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, down in verse 18, after the genealogy, which, by the way, genealogies we typically skip, don't we? But, but the order and the numbers and the inclusion of women in here are so rich to the Gospel of Matthew's purpose. But after all of this, he gives a rather brief account as compared to Luke of the account of Jesus' birth. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Isn't it fascinating? There's no account of the shepherds. There's no account of the star. But the details that Matthew provides are intentional. And I want to highlight a human interest detail that I think we can often miss. Between Mary and Joseph, who gets the most attention in the Christmas carols? Mary. With the books and the children's stories and the movies, who gets the most attention? It's Mary. But I want to draw your attention to Joseph. Look look down at verse 19. Her husband, Joseph. Now just put yourself in the sandals of this young teenager Young teenagers start to realize that girls don't have cooties, right? 
They start to realize that girls are attractive. You start to realize that, man, I could spend the rest of my life with an attractive young lady who we can develop a relationship together. And now he starts to, oh, that one, I'll, I'll take that one. She's gorgeous. She's got great character. She can teach. And he puts his affections on young Mary. And he goes and he asks her father, I'd like to have her hand in marriage. And he asks Mary and they both say yes. And he starts this betrothal period that you read here. And that's a formal covenant of marriage. And he spends usually about a year putting finances together, uh, building a house, getting everything prepared for his bride. And along the way, she comes to him and, oh, Mary, how are you, Mary? I can't wait till our wedding day. And she says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Feel the weight of that. And imagine the stages of grief that a shocking discovery of that would have produced. There would have been anger, frustration, confusion. That's what Joseph was going through as he interacted with the information that Mary had shared with her. But look at verse 19. He was a just man, unwilling to put her to shame. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome that the God of the universe knows your details with such intimacy that even as you are beginning to experience them, theologically you understand he's already ordained not only them to happen, but the solution? As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And what I want you to see is the details of the angel's message, as well as the details of what Matthew provides, reminds us of the patterns of God's abiding. How how can I show you that? Well, look at verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ, that is both his name as well as his title. The title of Christ was the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah or anointed one. He's drawing the reader's attention to that this baby who is born is actually the Messiah of the Old Testament. The patterns of abiding that God had promised are are being fulfilled in this baby. But then look at what it says when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. See, I think this is something we take for granted. We, we like to remember the historical context that this mean, means that this was a legal covenant. This was a, a legal agreement, but there's more to it. Imagine, if you will, what it would have been like for Moses to be leading over two million people from their place of living for generation to a land they had never seen before and somehow having to lead them politically, militarily, economically, and spiritually. That was daunting. And so God graciously provided for them a framework to be able to guide them in all of those categories as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land, and betrothal was one of those pieces. You can write down Deuteronomy 22, and you can look at it later where there's indication of the betrothal aspects of the covenant of Moses. And in that, we see the pattern of God abiding with his people, even in the wilderness, even as they traveled, even as they grumbled and rebelled, God's presence was there in his provision of the covenant. So we see that right here in the text. But we also see, look at verse 20. The angel says to this young man, Joseph. Which let's just stop right there and understand that Joseph as it relates to the details that we have in Scripture, was not somebody who had amazing physical stature. 
In the Bible, when somebody had something amazing physically, it usually gives a description like Saul. He was head and shoulders above all the other men. Esther, she was physically beautiful. But we don't ever see that from Joseph's account. We don't see that he was wealthy. In fact, quite the opposite. They couldn't even afford the sacrifice that was required at the temple. And so here the angel says, Joseph, that is his name. But look at the next phrase. And would you circle that, please? Son of whom? What does it say? David. For the Jews, ancestry was so important. All of them would and rightly claim to be descendants of Abraham. And then every tribe would indicate where their land allotment would be. And some of them indicated what role they would play in Israel, such as the tribe of Levi. But there was one ancestry that was most important, and that was if you could claim to be a son of David. Why is that? Because of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. The promise that God gave to David and to his line that he would forever be faithful to his covenant, that he would forever faithfully protect and provide for that line. And here the angel reminds Joseph of this pattern of God's presence, this pattern of God's abiding. Also, ask the team to put a quote up on the screen, verse 18, he starts this whole account by saying the birth of Jesus Christ. The word birth is the same word that is found in verse 1, translated book. It is the Genesis. And it is this repetition of Genesis that shows that the promise is still being fulfilled. You see how this concept of pattern is so present in the details that are provided. And then finally, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. There are details all throughout these few verses that remind the reader that when it comes to the birth of Christ, there is evidence in the details of the account that God's pattern is to abide with his people. God is faithful to abide with his people. God's presence is always with his people, even when we can't see it, and even when we do everything we can to eclipse it and block it out. Presence is important, isn't it? Especially when it comes to parents. Many of you know that I played professional baseball and obviously I wasn't great at it or else I wouldn't be taking a salary from this church because they make a lot of money, that's the point. But as I was going through my childhood years, the concept of baseball was central to our family. Our world revolved around two epicenters, Christ and baseball. And so my parents, many of you didn't have this experience, but my parents made sure that they were present at everything, even the days when we were like, practice, games, tournaments, rain, shine, they were there. There was one summer in particular in college where I was playing ball and didn't do very well throughout the entire summer. So much so that as the season got to the end, I was not in the starting lineup, but there was one game in particular where we were heading into the playoffs and the starting second baseman was disciplined and so I got a chance to start and I called my dad and let him know and he said, look, I'm I'm only a few hours away from where you are. I will drive and get there. And so I went out there and I got out and we started infield and I'm looking up at the stands to see, dad's not there, but I know he'll get here. 
First, the bat came up, did what I always do, just ground it out to first base. <laughs> and then things changed. My second at bat, I got up, and I didn't realize this, but my dad had just pulled in the parking lot. And as he opened the door, he heard my name announced, and he, he saw the ball travel over the fence. And if I would have known that he was there, I probably would have been like Darth Vader, like, I sense a presence. Because what happened after that was historical for a Terrell. Because the next at bat was another home run. The next at bat was a triple, and the final at bat was a third home run. Three home runs, nine RBIs, never again would I repeat that. But what happened was my dad was in the stands, and I had been so used to his presence that any time he was there, it impacted me. I had a confidence that I would gain. I, I would be relaxed. And that is the idea that as we reflect on God's presence, it is supposed to impact us. His patterns of abiding with his people, as I mentioned, when you look down at verse 20, that as Joseph considered these things, once again, God's presence was experienced. And here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. God's patterns of presence are intended to encourage, equip, and empower us to respond in faithful courage and resolve no matter the circumstances. And so this Advent season, beloved, what, what I want us to do is that baby in the manger is going to be a very unique example and illustration of God's presence. But even in the details of his birth, we are reminded through prophecy, through the angel showing up at just the right time, through the betrothal and the covenants of Moses, and through all of these details, we are reminded through the prophets and the fulfillment of prophecies, we are reminded that God has a pattern of abiding. Which brings us to number two, God's peculiar abiding. God's peculiar abiding. The word peculiar means special or unique. And by the way, let me just plant a seed here for future study for you and hopefully for us. I'll ask the team to put this up on the screen. When Matthew uses the phrase to fulfill, he is drawing the reader to see the fulfillment theologically as well as teach biblical interpretation the way Jesus taught his disciples. And friends, listen, that right there is a great legend for the map of the Gospel of Matthew. Several times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew will lead a quote from the Old Testament or a reference to a concept from the Old Testament with the phrase to fulfill. And he's signaling the reader that he's teaching us this is a theological fulfillment of a prophecy. And if you will learn from this, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to interpret the Bible. I had a guy come up to me in between services saying, I want to learn how to interpret the Bible better. The gospel of Matthew and the two fulfilled phrases is a great place to start. And so here's what he does, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, most of your Bibles will probably have this offset like a poetry line, or maybe you have brackets, or maybe you have caps or italics, but what this is showing is that this is a direct quote of the Old Testament. So here's what I want to do. Would you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7? Because this is where the, the quote is actually found. 
And when the authors of the New Testament quote an Old Testament passage, they want and also assume the reader will take into account the context of that passage. Now, most of us would read Isaiah 7:14 when we're reading through the Bible in a year and say, okay, Isaiah's prophesying Jesus. I mean, God had given him this view that there would be a baby in the manger, there would be shepherds, there would be a star. Isaiah somehow knew that, so he gave this prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus would be born, and and most of us would look at this passage this way, but I want us to see the context. Look at what it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Now, what's interesting about this is the historical context. You can write down 2 Chronicles 28, and you can look at it later. But if you walk through the 2 Chronicles 28 account, you see that this, this army had been marching from the north towards Jerusalem, killing 120,000 people taking captive 200,000, killing a son of the king, killing one of his elite commanders, killing the second in command in all of Judah. This is an unstoppable force. So no wonder when we hear in verse 2 that the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And listen, beloved, it's not just because of the military and political ramifications. Would you look at the phrase, house of David, and circle that, please? Because the house of David and the character of God were tightly connected. 2 Samuel 7, I already referenced this, but that is the account of the Davidic covenant. And in that covenant, you see vocabulary like God saying that I will set up your family forever, David. You will have a day when the enemies that you have faced throughout your generations no longer are a threat. My steadfast love, my covenant love will not depart from the house of David. And so this impossible army that is attacking was a threat not just to them politically, but also spiritually. Because if the house of David fell, so did the character of God. Have you ever been in an experience like that? You ever look back on your life and say that God has been faithful time and time again, but maybe not this time. That's what Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem were experiencing. Now Isaiah comes to him and he gives him a promise that really would have been mind-boggling for Ahaz. He says to Ahaz, this army that nobody can stop, this army that is guaranteed to defeat you, will be defeated. Now for us who likely know the rest of the story, we say, come on Ahaz, you should be able to understand this. But put yourself in his sandals and understand the staggering impossibility of that promise. And so Isaiah sees that in Ahaz's response, and he says, you don't believe? You can ask for a sign. It can be any sign. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I won't do that. And so Isaiah says, I will give you a sign. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Doesn't it sound like we just read that? 
Now, what I want you to see is that there is a predictive fulfillment of this as well as a theological. The predictive one is actually given more details about as we look at Isaiah 7. Walk down through Isaiah 7, and you can see in verse 16 that before this boy that is prophesied in verse 14 knows what is good and knows what is evil, this nation will be defeated. This army will be defeated. This is a predictive prophecy. The child that is prophesied in verse 14 is given as evidence that God is with us. And what Isaiah says is before this child knows how to discern between good and evil, the threat that is coming toward Jerusalem will be destroyed. Doesn't take long for kids to be able to discern good from evil, does it? What's interesting is flip over to chapter 8. Verse 3, I went into the prophetess, this is Isaiah speaking, and she conceived and bore a son. Interesting. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, not Emmanuel, but Meher Shalah Hashbaz, for before the, by the way, don't call your kids that. <laughs> but for the boy, before the boy knows how to cry father and mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. This is repeating, essentially, what chapter 7 had said, is this child who is promised to be born will be so young that you will not be able to even fathom the fact that in that short amount of time, this enemy that is invading will be defeated, and it will remind you, look at verse 10 of chapter 8, that God is with us, the Hebrew term is Emmanuel. This is the predictive aspects of this prophecy. Isaiah prophesied that Ahaz, God is going to be with you just as he has always been with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, just as he's always been with the house of David, even in this impossible situation. God is going to be with you. In fact, let me give you evidence of this. There is going to be a child who is born, and before he is old enough to call good or evil, before he's old enough to say mama or papa, this impossible threat is going to be defeated. And that was fulfilled. But now flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Now we get to the theological fulfillment. And it's as though Matthew is telling his readers, readers, listen, you are very familiar with the Old Testament. You are very familiar with Jewish history. And so do you remember, reader, do you remember that impossible situation where the people were in a situation that they were desperate Remember, they were bound to be defeated by this enemy. Do you remember that desperate situation? Well, guess what? The situation when Jesus came as a baby was even more desperate. Look back at verse 21. He will save people from their sins. Friends, that is the most desperate situation humanity faces. It is greater than any military enemy. It is greater than any economic downturn. It is the ultimate enemy that we face, and it is our own sin. So remember that time when Judah was facing that impossible military situation. Well, this situation is even more desperate. And then what he's saying is, do you remember that baby that was born to a virgin, but not when conception happened? Back in chapter 8 and verse 3. 
And remember how that baby was born to the prophet and to his wife, and that baby was giving you evidence that God was with us. Listen, this woman is actually a virgin. And he says three times in very creative ways, before Joseph knew her, before they came together, with child of the Holy Spirit. And then he uses the Greek term in verse 23 that can only be describing a woman who has never been intimate with a man. And Matthew is saying, remember that time? This is even more amazing. This is an actual virgin. And then look at the parentheses in verse 23. This is not a child who's giving evidence of God being with us. This is actually, look at what it says, God with us. Which, man, if you don't get excited about that, I, I, I don't know what else I can do. This is peculiar. This is special. This is unique. God had been with his people so many times through the generations, but most especially in this baby who theologically fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not. See, Matthew wants us to get this is different than Isaiah 7. This is so unique and special. He did not know her until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. This is special. This is unique. You know, one of the blessings of being married is you get to learn that the things that are special to your spouse are not things you would consider special. I'm going to show a picture of a cup that we have at our house. Nothing really special about that. It's not the cup that you would grab when you're thirsty. But that cup stays out on our island at our, church, or at our house all the time. That cup is protected. That cup, when we've had a couple of close calls, and we have, elicits within the response of my wife, a <gasps> we treat that cup differently. Why? Because for my wife, this is a cup from her childhood. It is a very special cup to her because of the memories, and we treat the cup differently. See, Advent is intended to just slow us down. Advent is intended to draw our attention to the concept of the Latin term adventus, which means coming or arrival. It was intended throughout church history for us to look back at Jesus' first coming and to anticipate with great expectation his second coming when he will set up his kingdom on this earth forever and ever and ever. Amen. It reminds us of the unique, unparalleled expression of God's presence, his coming to this earth. My family is going through Paul Tripp's book on Advent. I think it's called, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. We have copies out on the resource area. Which, by the way, let me just remind you, that, that resource area, the bookshelves, that, those are, are, are curated books and resources that are intended to help you in your walk with Christ. So just take opportunities to see what is there. And if anything, uh, it leads you to want to purchase them. We, we believe that they will help you. And one of the resources is Advent. We don't do it perfectly. In fact, we've only done it one time in the first five days of December. 
But these are intended to be able to get our focus as a family and as a household on Christ. And Paul Tripp does an amazing job in the opening paragraph, the, the opening chapter. He, he says, just think about this concept. The, the earth was created perfectly. We talked about that last week. It was exactly the way God designed it. It was exactly the way he knew humanity would enjoy it. And we messed it up. And in our messing it up, it wasn't just that we fumbled it. We dropped it intentionally. And because of that, it shattered the perfect design that God had requiring a solution in Christ. But Paul Tripp reminds us that he could have just judged humanity right then. He could have just destroyed humanity right then. He could have just spent generations and millennia just pouring out his wrath on humanity and been right to do that, but he didn't. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He came to earth. He reached out to us. He lived a life, Hebrews 4.15 says, that experienced everything that we experience. God is not detached from our experience. Everything that we have experienced in principle, he experienced. So there's nothing that we can say, well, Jesus didn't go through that. No, he did without sin. And then after living a perfect life, he gave his life on the cross, a shameful and painful death to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would believe. And then he pronounced victory over death, the the very thing that humanity fears above everything else. He pronounced victory through his resurrection. And then, amazingly so, took the equipment that he waged war and became the victor and now gives that to all of his people, Ephesians 6 says. The weapons and the equipment that he used, you and I now have. That's awesome. That's special. It's unique. And our reflection on that most peculiar abiding is intended like that cup to impact the way we approach him, the way we pursue him, the way we tell others about him. It is God's peculiar, most special and unique abiding. But number three, God's particular abiding. And we have to go outside of the birth narrative. Would you turn over to John 4, please? John 14, forgive me. And I'm taking you to John 14 because I I want this exercise to remind us that the birth of Jesus Christ is awesome. It's great. We should focus on it. But it is a part of the story. It is not the end of the story. It is not even the beginning of the story. But it is an essential chapter. It is an essential paragraph of this most amazing story that the creator of the universe has designed all of this to be about. But as we move from the birth of Jesus, this most peculiar demonstration of his presence, we need to see the particular presence of God in his Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is found in the opening verses of Genesis. It says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters during creation. As we progress through Torah, we see in Exodus 33 that a man named Bezalel had the Spirit come upon him to be able to equip him to be able to be an excellent craftsman. We see the Spirit of God coming upon Othniel and Jephthah and Samson and the judges. 
We see the Spirit of God coming upon Saul and equipping him to speak for God. We saw the the Holy Spirit come upon David to equip him to be the king that he was. We saw the Holy Spirit depart from Saul. But there's something that happens in this whole concept in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 33. You can write that down and look at it later. The prophet says, speaking the words of God, that there will come a day when I, God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he makes more of a distinction. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, male, female servants. What he's not saying here is that every human being without distinction will receive this pouring out. What he's saying is up to the point when this happens, the Holy Spirit came upon unique people in unique roles for unique time for a temporary experience. But when this day happens, the Holy Spirit will be given in a different way without distinction for male, female, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, kings, priests. There will be no distinction of those horizontal titles. This day, he will pour out his Spirit on all of these categories. We see John further this concept in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7 and verse 39, he gives an account of what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And he's saying there are those who believe were to receive the Holy Spirit, but they had not been yet given the Holy Spirit because Jesus had not yet glorified. And so John, in his gospel, is setting up what he's going to say in verse 14, or in chapter 14. Is that all of that experience with the Holy Spirit throughout Genesis up to this point would change with Christ. Look at John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells. Look at these words. These are so important. Right now he dwells with you, but he will be in you. What Jesus is signaling to the disciples that is that your generation, in fact, you to whom I am speaking, will be the point that Joel was talking about, that the transition of the Holy Spirit being temporary and for unique people and unique roles will now be to all believers. He's signaling that right now. And look at the description. This will be a helper. Would you circle that? Would you write out to the side that it is the word paraclete? Oh, man, we don't use that a whole lot. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-E. Why is that important? Because in some circles of theology, that is what the Holy Spirit is referred to as paraclete. He is the helper. He is the comforter. John 16 says he will convict the world of sin. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit does that? Aren't you glad that you have a mechanism in your life that is not just feelings or emotions or what somebody else says, that the Holy Spirit through his word can tell you whether or not something is sin? It says that he will guide the disciples toward the truth. And the rest of the New Testament says he does that to the believers. John 17, 17 says that the truth is the word of God. So that means the Holy Spirit is going to teach us and open our eyes to understand what the word of God says. It also says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will bring glory to Christ through your life and mine, either through our judgment and our punishment or through our obedience because he empowers that. 
You ever have a moment in your life, maybe even right now, where you're like, God, I need help bringing glory to Christ. This is the helper. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that it is to your advantage that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. This is an amazing treasure, the the particular presence of God. What a treasure and a gift. It reminds me of the Xbox 360. Challenge accepted to try to bring the Xbox into this. I remember when that thing came out as a young married person, I could not afford it. And so I did what all married young men do that cannot afford something. They Google. And I Googled free Xbox 360. (laughs) And so I started looking through all of those websites. And some of them had good pictures. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is legit. But as I looked at the details, as I looked at the fine print, it was scam after scam after scam. Except one. It said that if you can get an X amount of friends and family to sign up for trials, if you can get them to sign up for the trials, they don't have to continue afterwards, you will get your Xbox 360. So I, I, I created a spreadsheet. Nerd. I created a spreadsheet to have everybody's name down, what their trial was, when they needed to cancel it. I would call them up to say, hey, listen, you've got three days to cancel or else you're going to be charged. And I went through about two or three excruciating months of that. I got my Xbox 360. That was pretty amazing. But it was important that I was not scammed and that I read the details of what was required. Look at John 14. Jesus says, I'm going to give you this helper. He will be with you forever. He's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. And he gives us in those chapters the amazing benefits of this particular presence. But there are expectations and requirements. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's probably not anyone here in this room or watching online that would rebelliously say, I don't love Jesus. But how can you tell? Well, verse 15 says, you will keep my commandments. And isn't it fascinating to read the New Testament that God is not exclusively interested on what we look like on the outside. He's more interested on where we begin on the inside. And and here's what I want to show you is that the order of these phrases is important. God does not save us and give us the Holy Spirit because we obey him. It is not our works, it is not your attendance at church, it is not your prayers, it is not your tithes and offerings, it is not your obedience that unlocks the benefits of salvation. It is simply this, do you love Christ above all else? Friend, that's my question to you this morning as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Have you entered into relationship with Christ Recognizing your sin, acknowledging the solution, and then surrendering to it, asking him to forgive your sins. See, if you do that, then here's what happens. When you, when you begin to understand what you've been forgiven and that eternity in hell is no longer your destination, when you realize that there should be something that goes on in your heart and the overflow of that is, of course I want to obey Of course I want to delight in Christ. Of course my language should honor him. Of course my obedience in the church and outside of the church should honor Christ and bring glory to Christ. But none of us can do that alone. We need the helper. 